Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining um, in the middle of a busy day, I'm sure, uh, for this third installment of a special series brought to you by the American College of Chest Physicians on the approach to hypoxia in patients with COVID-19. Um, we've had uh, such a fantastic interest for the first two sessions that we uh, got you three very enthusiastic experts who uh, I know personally are very opinionated on this topic and their opinions are very much based on the latest evidence. Um, so I'm personally very excited to learn from them and learn with you. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce our three panelists and then we'll jump right into questions. Um, before we go further, there is a chat box, a question box that you can use to raise questions. I will be monitoring it and I will try to sneak in the questions um, during the webinar uh, as I am able to fit them in. And um, hopefully by the end, we'll be able to address all of them uh, in the end uh, question slot uh, if we haven't been able to address them during the webinar. So please uh, post your questions to us. And the webinar recording will be available um, in, in a few days. So once it is up on the website, please do remember to share it so that if your colleagues haven't been able to make it, they can access it as well. So introducing our three fantastic panelists, I'll start, I'll start with Dr. Uh, Nida Kadir. Uh, she's an assistant professor at, the, uh, at UCLA. I see her smiling. I, I did the name right, correct? Yes. Yes, you got it right. Don't worry. Thank you. Thank you. I practice, guys. But Dr. Kadir is, is a colleague I've come to respect fantastically, and not just because uh, of her interest in ARDS and ICU recovery, uh, or the fact that she's a co-director of their pandemic and response team, but also because uh, she has a very uh, nuanced and very thoughtful approach to care of her patients in the ICU. Um, Dr. Uh, Vikram Mukherjee is, the, is an assistant professor of medicine um, at NYU, director of the medical ICU at the Bellevue Hospital. So um, we know that you know, he's um, had a first-hand experience in managing uh, patients with hypoxia through this pandemic. He leads their mass, uh, he's interested in mass critical care, uh, thanks to this pandemic, as he was telling me earlier, and is the director of their special pathogens program, which I almost feel like he has a secret badge somewhere that he's not shown me, but that's okay. Um, and finally, we have a very near, dear friend and uh, truly an inspiration mentor for myself, Dr. Alice Gallo de Moraes, who is a consultant at the Mayo Clinic. She is, as I tell everybody, the queen of proning. She, she thought prone, she knew proning worked and promoted it much, much before we were in this situation. And uh, so I'm glad to see a proning get its due, and I'm sure Dr. Gallo was as well. She also uh, is an expert in mechanical ventilation on how to apply it in different patient populations, especially high-risk patient populations, and leads the rapid response and the emerging, emergency response teams um, in the program at Mayo Clinic. So welcome, all of you. Thank you for joining. And um, without much ado, we'll move to the first question then. So Dr. Kadir, I have this much publicized graph for you, right? Um, we've all heard about the H phenotype and the L phenotype in ARDS related to COVID-19. And yes, I wanna know if you know the evidence suggests that it's real, but more importantly, there has been implication that this has impact on care. So do you think that the evidence supports that we should dichotomize COVID-19 related ARDS in these two types? And do you think we should use that to direct treatment? So uh, for those who are unfamiliar, uh, this is a conceptual model um, suggesting an H phenotype and an L phenotype in COVID related ARDS, H type being high lung weight with low compliance and L type being low lung weight with high compliance. And um, to say there's been a lot of debate about this topic would be an understatement. Um, this has turned into a full-on pulmonary critical care nerd war, and um, I'm here for it. I'm probably one of those nerds, and I think that all jokes aside, all of this debate has forced us to really take a deeper dive into what we do and do not know about ARDS. So in terms of the question, I think there are actually two parts to this. The first is, are there subphenotypes in ARDS? And the answer to that is yes. The second is, are those phenotypes type L and type H? 
I think this is an interesting hypothesis, but much of the data we have thus far hasn't yet seemed to confirm this. So in terms of what we do know about ARDS subphenotypes, uh, Dr. Carolyn Kelfi and her group at UCSF have done extensive work in this area. Um, they have derived subphenotypes from large multicenter cohorts that have different levels of inflammation, shock, and acidosis, and may also have variable responsiveness to heat. Uh, these type H and type L uh, model, it doesn't incorporate some of these factors. Um, I think additionally, high compliance hasn't yet regularly been seen, um, to my knowledge. Um, and in fact, the cohort, some of the larger cohorts that have been published um, from uh, New York, Boston, and earlier on in Seattle, um, noted median compliance in the 20s to 30s, um, which I would say is similar to what I've seen in my practice. Um, I think what's more important, though, is that the benefit of tailoring therapy to these phenotypes has not ever been established, and it remains theoretical. Um, and in particular, in managing patients with this type L uh, proposed phenotype with increased tidal volume does deviate from evidence-based practices in ERDS that we do know reduce mortality. So low tidal volume we saw in ARMA um, was associated with better outcomes even in patients with higher compliance. Um, we also know um, from Dale Needham's work that in early ARDS, which is probably the group represented by this type L, that um, tidal volume increases by as little as one ml per kilo of predicted body weight are associated with mortality. So, you know, it may ultimately turn out that there may be some basis to type H and type L and maybe even some overlap with these previously established subphenotypes, but changing the management of these patients based on a conceptual model is probably premature at this point and, you know, comes with the risk of potentially patient, placing these patients at risk for harm. No, thank you for that summary, uh, Dr. Kadir, and I, I was trying to keep up with the evidence as you were sharing it. Um, Dr. Gallo, Dr. Mukherjee, any thoughts? Because I think a lot of the rest of the discussion is going to be based on this. So would love to have your perspective. I would just like to add to what Dr. Kadir says that I believe that this is regular viral, this is regular ARDS um, um, induced by a viral infection. And I think we should stick to what we know. Um, and those phenotypes have been described in the paper in the late 80s, part of like a vast array of ARDS phenotypes. So we've, we've been in the know. Um, completely agree with my colleagues here. Um, we, uh, this is not specific to COVID-19. Regular ARDS can show different phenotypes. And this is just uh, extrapolation of the same data that's out there. And even though I'm not the panelist, if I may add, uh, some of the published, published authors who have described the phenotypes have actually been the leaders of the original description of these very phenotypes when ARDF was originally described. So um, I think we've known about this, right? So moving on to the next question, and I'm going to direct this to uh, Dr. Gallo. Can we have the next question pulled up, please? So Dr. Gallo, like I said, uh, proning is something that you've always advocated for, but what's become quite a sort of prevalent or well-described now is the concept of awake or self-proning. And part of it was directed because we were trying to, you know, not intubate too early. So ha has it been found to be effective, you know, in patients with COVID-19 who are not ventilated? And then a lot of people ask me all the time, so are there established protocols? I think we know the protocols for sort of uh, proning ventilated patients. What about non-ventilated patients? That's a fantastic question. Uh, so first thing that we need to know, again, um, COVID, very baby disease, eight months old. Uh, but there are some protocols that have been established uh, about two years ago now for regular infectious pneumonias um, in, in proning without um, um, invasive mechanical ventilation. Uh, the protocols uh, currently for COVID that have been working is, is about one hour sessions, at least five times of awake time. And then at night, encouraging patients to sleep on their bellies. Um, there are about, I want to say, five or six like very well-designed protocols that have been published already. 
and they are showing that it prevents um, intubation. Um, some of them, though, showing that patients end up being intubated, intubated a little earlier. Um, so the conclusion so far is if you're going to prone awake patients, prone patients on non-invasive or, or high-flow nasal cannula, do it early and encourage sessions of minimum one hour several times a day while awake and, and have them sleep on their bellies. Um, so I would say established, established, no, but we have some, some publications that I believe you already put on the chat box um, with recommendations. And I believe Dr. Simpson is leading a big uh, multi-center trial on that. Um, that I'm curious, I'll be curious to see what the results show. But again, so far for, for, from before COVID, we know that it works and for COVID it has been working too. And, and yes, I love proning. I think, I think it works. And, and if I may, um, several physio physiological benefits of, of proning um, that happen in invasive mechanical ventilation that will happen also um, on non-invasive or, or uh, high flow, mainly um, improving VQ matching, improving secretion clearance, and also improving with ventilation um, are some of the things. Dr. Kadir, any thoughts on, uh, besides the fact that we are awake proning, almost like it's an accepted standard, what else has been impressive for you in terms of this field in COVID-19? I mean, I think I'm just, I'm really excited that proning is becoming a thing now, becoming popular, because it was seriously underutilized before. And I'm not just referring to awake proning, but, um, you know, proning in mechanically ventilated patients. Um, was used in less than 10% of patients in, in lung safe. Um, so I think that is, that is my, uh, that is one of um, the things that I am hopeful about that we'll see more of this and more evidence-based practice in the area. Fair enough. Well, Dr. Mukherjee, I had, uh, I had a question planned for you. So we'll move to question three now. Um, Talking about patients who have developed hypoxia already, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was concerns about transmission to healthcare workers, with aerosolization. So I think there was tendency towards early intubation, which you know, with time we learned may not work out the best. And uh, so we, we are trying to, uh, I shouldn't say temporize, but uh, we probably are going much longer now. So where do you see high flow uh, oxygen and non-invasive ventilation fitting in the management of these patients? Uh, thanks, Dr. Colin. This is a very important question in my mind. Um, I'll try to answer it in two parts. One, the role of uh, high-flow nasal cannula, and then come to non-invasive. Uh, in my opinion, and there's some data from the non-COVID literature showing that uh, HFNC or high-flow nasal cannula has significant benefit in your uh, early moderate to severe ARDS population. We know from the uh, Florali study, which looked at acute hypoxic patients with mostly bilateral infiltrates, uh, and compared HFNC versus non-invasive versus nasal cannula, that you had a trend towards uh, overall improvement in mortality if you used high-flow nasal cannula. Physiologically, we know that high-flow nasal cannula improves mucociliary clearance, helps your ciliary uh, function, and can loosen secretions. And I think that's really topical in patients with COVID ARDS. Here, at least in Bellevue, uh, we saw that post extubation or endotracheal endotri tubes were clogged with thick mucus secretions. And I feel that uh, the humidified oxygen that HFNC can deliver will have a benefit in that regard. Um, there is a theoretical risk of aerosol generation, but um, recent data from the European Respiratory Journal has shown that as long as you put a mask on the patient uh, using HFNC, it can be delivered in a safe manner without, a lot of, without any nosocomial transmission documented. Uh, but that said, I would urge that if someone is, in high flow, is using high-flow nasal cannula, we should deliver it in an airborne isolation room just because patients can decompensate pretty unexpectedly. And then you're suddenly rushing to intubate a patient and doing that can be a super spreading event, which if possible should not be done in a non-negative pressure room. So in that, benef in, in that regard, I feel HFNC has a strong role to play in the pre-intubation phase. That said, in a very monitored, if possible, negative pressure room. Um, I would uh, uh, portray or describe non-invasive a little bit of more caution. Um, non-invasive, we know, is aerosol generating. Um, a lot of our patients had 
uremic encephalopathy from a 35% renal replacement therapy need, and uremia, altered mental status, and biopaps do not go well with each other, risk of emesis, and so forth. Um, and secondly, aerosol generation and the risk of decompensation. I would uh, suggest using non-invasive only if you're running out of ventilators and have no invasive mechanical ventilation to use. So in summary, definitely a big fan of HFNC, a little bit more cautious about non-invasive. Fair enough. Can I, can I, can I make a comment about that, Dr. Vikram? Um, um, I, I agree with you that is aerosol, aerosol generating, but um, like for example, some patients come in and they don't wanna be intubated. They are DNI, for example. I, I feel like those patients deserve like deserve a trial of non-invasive, of course, provided that the team has the appropriate PPE to, to care for those patients. I'm not I'm I will never advocate put the, the team at risk if if the patient will be okay on high flow. But but I've I've seen so far some patients who were DNI that turned the corner with with a trial of non-invasive um, and for example patients who have osa that need their cpap um, i would advocate that we should try to get their machine from home put a viral filter and and they would benefit from from keeping um the um, the treatment of their um, sleep apnea going so i i I like that you answered that because I had a question from Kieran. Oh, I apologize. Oh, no, that's great. I like this. We're clairvoyant. Because uh, Kieran said, um, you know, what does the panel think about the recent high-quality network uh, analysis and JAMA that showed mortality benefit of non-invasive over high flow? And I think you answered it. I think it's situation-specific. And it's, I don't, I, we've basically learned that we won't rule any one entity out. I think that's what I'm... Um, certainly getting from you guys with high flow obviously being uh, used a little more frequently. So uh, with that, we'll go into the next question uh, so we can actually take more questions. So Dr. Gallo, um, and I know there's already a lot of questions of uh, people asking this question. So when should we intubate these hypoxic patients? So we learned that probably intubating everybody early is not great, but obviously you don't want to wait to the point where they decompensate to the degree where, you know, you're also trying to do a true RSI and paralyze them. And so you have no reserve left. So what's that clinical sweet spot? Um, so like, like we, all of us already said um, so far in the first 18 minutes, really individualizing this. So um, at the beginning of the pandemic, when, when, when um, we first heard about it, we, we were told that this patient should have been, should be intubated pretty early. And looking back at the data we have, my understanding is exactly what, what um, um, Vikram was saying before, that we were very concerned about infecting the healthcare team, right? So people were advocating for early intubation, protecting the team. And um, then a second wave came of knowledge and um, there was like the happy hypoxia, just sit on these people, they don't need to be intubated. So from reading everything that has come out and from taking care of these patients um, on and off since February, um, the sweet spot I would say is the same sweet spot for any acute hypoxemic respiratory failure that we see. Is it harmful to try high flow nasal cannula? No, absolutely not. This, some of these patients will do very well with just that extra flow um, that can give them a little peep that can wash out the upper airway um, CO2. But if you see that someone is breathing 50 a minute, that they are getting tired, that their CO2 is going up despite them trying to ventilate, that's the time to intubate. Another, another thing that I wanna make sure that we talk about is, um, then when we became very comfortable with the fact that a viral filter and a, a clinical team, that a, a team of clinicians that could uh, use the appropriate PPE uh, was safe to take care of these patients on uh, non-invasive, I feel like we sat on these patients for a little bit and then, it, and then it ended up happening exactly what, what you said, Dr. Cole, that um, we were then intubating crashing patients and, and that's never... Um, never say never, but that's usually not a good approach. So I would say, look at these patients, provided that 
you have enough PPE for your team and it's a safe environment for the team and the patient. Look at these patients as regular uh, acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. Don't sit on them on non-invasive if they are full code for three hours, four hours um, and, and intubate them when they need it. I think actually that's a fantastic point. And I think that's a good critical care teaching point in general, right? That, and I tell my trainees this all the time, there's no hard cut rules for delivering a standard of critical care is the trajectory of care that the trajectory of the clinical progression that matters. So if the trajectory is suggesting that, you know, you will not be able to sustain your non-invasive ventilator remote, and then you're basically exhausting your work of breathing reserve, then, you know, consider intubation is what I'm hearing from you. Um, we have a little time to deviate. So I'm going to put you guys in uh, on a little bit of a spot. So people ask me this all the time. So that's great. We understand that you have to look for this high work of breathing, but what does that mean clinically? Are we looking at respiratory rate? Are we looking at the scalenes? Are we looking at the sternocleidomastoids? Basic science shows that if your sternal notches are attracting, that's work of breathing. So what is it? Or is it all of the above? Or what else do you do? I think it's all of the above. Um, and it's, it's, it's your overall gestalt of the patient. Um, it's hard to, there's not like one single finding that, um, that is indicative of work of breathing in my mind. Um, so I think, you know, retractions, somebody not able, somebody who's not able to speak to you, somebody who's invisible distress, um, you know, and, and also what's also important is I think the trajectory, um, if, if somebody has, you know, some stable level of tachypnea um, and you've been able to watch them for hours and they're, you know, kind of staying the same. That's very different from somebody who, you know, two hours ago was having a perfectly normal conversation with you on a couple of liters of nasal cannula and now is, um, you know, struggling to get words out and having rapidly escalating O2 requirements. So I think trajectory and, you know, your overall gestalt of the patient or what's important. And maybe this is a little bit more where like the experience of an intensivist comes in. Um, and because I, I just don't, I don't think you can chalk it up to just one isolated finding. It's fair. So <clears throat> I, and I'm sure you, uh, everybody else wants to pitch in. I just want to quickly say that there's this beautiful paper that Dr. Tobin uh, wrote in the Blue Journal, and I would I posted the link, and I think it's actually a really, really finessed piece on how to assess this aspect, this physiological parameter. So, um, keeping that in mind, um, my next question for you guys was going to be what would have been on the screen. So that would be question five, but I'm going to throw you another curveball here. A lot of people want to know. Okay, you intubated these patients what mode of ventilation are you going to pick up? And is this, you know, what role does APRV or inverse ratio ventilation play? But I will set you up even better, right? Is that all this is in the setting of ARDSNET trial, right? Which says that, you know, practice low tidal volume ventilation in these situations, which is defined as six to eight liters per kg, uh, cc's per kg, going all the way down to four cc's per kg within respectable parameters. So, but what I want to point out is that they didn't necessarily point towards a particular mode of ventilation. They talked about what to set, right? So how do you reconcile that with what mode to choose? Because a lot of these patients take big, huge breaths. Um, Varun, if I may, um, I could take the first step at that question, but I just want to follow up on something that Alice uh, mentioned, which is uh, worth reemphasizing in my mind is that a crash intubation in this setting is going to be a, a very difficult, disastrous, super spreading event. So while there's a fine line between intubating too early, we shouldn't wait for a patient's has to be in the 40s because it's going to take at least a few minutes, if not double digits of minutes, to safely don your PPE, go into the room, get your video deal, which should be a preferred mode of intubation, get your paralytics, which again, you should be using here, and then inducing and intubating. And none of those things will be happening quickly. And remember, this is July, so this is not an intubation that your first year critical care fellow should be doing. This is an intubation that the most practiced hands in those settings. So um, uh, again, a few nuances to the intubation, which uh, I'm sure most of our audience knows, but just to be emphasizing here that this is a high risk. We know from Toronto that the SARS-CoV-1 intubations were super spreading events and uh, we shouldn't wait too late 
uh, for a crash intubation to happen. Um, sorry, so your next question, I'll just continue. Can I just say something? I think, I think in general, in critical care, we should not wait for a crashing intubation um, if, we, if we can prevent that. Sorry. Sure. I love that we're all agreeing vehemently on this topic. Uh, Dr. Kadir, I feel like I want to bring you in because I, 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 I love that we're all getting this passionate about this. So tell me, uh, you, you intubate your patient and what mode do you choose? I mean, in terms of what mode I choose, I, I often feel like it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. I, I think ultimately the things that are important are tidal volume, driving pressure, um, you know, plateau pressures. Um, and, you know, if somebody, upon initial intubation, um, I generally will start with volume control because I know exactly what I am setting there, but I, I feel like there are a lot of modifications that you make along the way. Um, people have variable responsiveness to PEEP. Um, people, um, as you try to wake them up more, um, I find that some people are more um, comfortable on pressure targeted modes because there isn't that hard stop on flow. Um, but yeah. if you have the time to be at the bedside and, um, you know, deal with all of the nuances um, of whatever mode, um, I, I think you can pick, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter which mode you pick. Um, you have to tailor it to the patient. Um, and, uh, you know, there are, a lot, there are going to be a lot of dynamic changes along the way. And I actually want to take a second to point out that this is the reason why the standard of care during a pandemic, that duress standard is different as compared to your daily standard in critical care, because a lot of what you do in critical care is, is that regular frequent assessments, regular changes in modes. It's not that you, it's one mode fit all. So I like the idea. You start with volume control because you know where you're going, but if that's not working for you, then adjusting it to the patient so that you're synchronous and safe and again, within parameters. And I want to take that second to thank all, everybody who's obviously been working on the front lines, uh, Vikram especially, everybody, all of you in New York City and now down in, uh, down south, because I know this was a hard, hard time. So I can imagine how stressful it was to manage all those ventilators together, making these changes. Um, so, all right, I'm actually going to continue at this point uh, with our actual uh, webinar question. Dr. Kadir, for you, um, what I wanted to ask you is a lot of debate out there, right? And actually, um, turns out finally there is a paper, so that's great. Uh, but after the press release there, do you suggest we use steroids or you don't use steroids? And, and what do you think in summary about this um, trial out from uh, UK? So I think the recovery trial must be the most talked about trial ever that has not yet been published in a peer reviewed journal. Um, the NIH even modified their recommendations uh, for steroids in patients with COVID-19 based on this trial. And they now recommend dexamethasone for COVID patients who require supplemental O2 or, on, or are on mechanical ventilation um, and recommend against the use of steroids in patients who are not on O2. So um, I think there's a lot that goes into this trial. And first, congrats to the investigators for quickly enrolling over 6,000 patients. Um, that is not an easy task. Um, and also they've been very um, open about their protocol and study documents and they're freely available on their website. Um, so for those who are not familiar with the specifics of the trial, this is a multi-arm platform trial that assessed multiple therapies in parallel. Um, they compared steroids versus usual care. It was open label, and more specifically, um, the intervention was dexamethasone, six milligrams per day for up to 10 days. And their outcome was 28-day mortality. And they found an absolute risk reduction in the group who got dexamethasone um, in terms of mortality, 22% um, versus 25%. And um, on top of that, there is seemingly increased separation for patients who are on O2, so 20% risk reduction, uh, relative risk reduction there. Um, and more notably, the patients who are on invasive mechanical ventilation, um, in which they found a 35% relative risk reduction. Um, what's also important to note is there is a non-significant trend towards harm in the no O2 group um, with a mortality of 17% versus 13%. So this is pretty exciting news, especially because steroids are cheap and readily available. Um, 
but there are some caveats. So this is an open label trial and physicians could opt out if they, physicians meaning the treating bedside physicians could opt out if they felt that steroids were absolutely indicated or absolutely not indicated. Um, and if you dig a little deeper into like the FAQs and meeting slides, and this is what I do in my spare time because I don't know, I'm a nerd and my life's been consumed with COVID for the last few months. Um, but they, um, they did exclude patients who are on high-dose steroids for a concomitant condition um, and patients who are on chronic steroids. And it was suggested to consider excluding patients who had poorly controlled diabetes. So this is pragmatic and probably the right thing to do for patients, but it does potentially exclude a sicker patient population. So those with shock, those who are immunocompromised, and also patients at increased risk for harm from steroids. So uh, meaning the poorly, the patients with poorly controlled diabetes. Um, another caveat is that the mortality rates for the control groups were higher than those seen in other centers, including my own. So that makes me wonder if there are unknown confounders there. And then I think the whole subgroup analysis, um, you know, there's, there's some questions I have there. So the patients on invasive mechanical ventilation were substantially younger, more likely to be male, and had more days since symptom onset. So what does this mean? Are these the actual subgroups that have difference in, you know, uh, mortality based on steroids, I'm not so sure. So it may mean that steroids are only beneficial later in the course of COVID, or that age is a factor here, meaning that maybe it's younger patients who benefit from steroids. And it's certainly conceivable that they would be less likely to experience harm from steroids. Um, and in fact, if you look at the supplement, you can see that men, people under age 70, and people with more than seven days of symptoms were indeed the groups that were most likely to benefit from steroids. So with all of this in mind, my takeaway still though, is that steroids likely are helpful in later COVID infection. Um, I do suspect that the reduction in mortality may not be as high as it seems at initial glance um, when generalized to my usual patient population, um, but it's still likely to be useful. Um, one could also argue that the risk-benefit ratio of um, dexamethasone may be, you know, may be better than some of the other therapeutics that we've tried, like anti-IL-6 therapy, therapeutic anticoagulation, and, you know, and, and whatnot. Um, one other caveat I think is important to mention is that although I said steroids are likely beneficial in later um, COVID, that does not mean that they're beneficial in later ARDS. And there is actually um, evidence that it may be harmful in later into the course of ARDS. However, people seem to develop ARDS um, you know, after they're a week or so into their COVID symptoms of COVID. So, um, this likely isn't an issue there, but I just wanted to be very clear about that. I also, um, sorry, Mikram, really quick. I was going to say any thoughts from any of you on how these results correlate with use of steroids in previous sort of studies that have studied uh, COVID, uh, not COVID-19, but ARDS situations from viral sort of pathogenicity, one. And two, a lot of people are interested. So does this mean Decadron is the... Uh, new solimedrol or any favorites there, or can we use any steroid, which steroid? How do you go about it? Um, I can, thanks, Virin. So um, in my opinion, uh, Decadron seems to, seems to have a class effect in this and not unique to dexamethasone. And I think that becomes an interesting uh, issue because as this pandemic continues to rage, we will surely face shortages of Decadron if everyone is rushing to use it. And then we have to reach for prednisone and solimedrol or what have you. Um, Dicodron has certain advantages to lung mechanics. It causes lesser water and salt retention because of low mineral corticoid activity, and it has a short, longer half-life, so sustained immune suppression. But overall, my understanding is you could easily use prednisone or solimedrol if you don't have any Dicodron in your hospital uh, going forward. Dr. Gallo, you want any thoughts on that? I... I am a little skeptical still because um, I I would like to see the whole study peer reviewed and everything. My main concern and and Dr. Kadir mentioned that 
is the um, their more baseline mortality worries me that maybe that's a reflection of different centers not doing appropriate basic critical care like we were talking about before um so I, again I, w- I would like to see exactly what their like regular critical care is maybe maybe we're t- we're including a lot of patients in centers that don't have physical therapy or a lot of centers that don't have like a protocol for daily SBTs. Um, and then, yes, if your mortality is 40% to begin with, why steroids would not work? You know, anything would work. So I'm, I'm a little skeptical. I'm going to leave it like that elegantly. So I think that's, if I may, I think that's a really important point because there is, I think we're seeing a lot of heterogeneity in the way patients are managed and approached And to do good, basic, bread and butter, fundamental critical care is very labor intensive. Um, It would be pretty challenging to do in a system that is under strain. Um, And, you know, even in situations in which we're not under strain, um, we, you know, we've seen in the past that we're not great about using lung protective ventilation. We're not great about proning patients. Um, you know, I think we saw this in, in, in lung safe as well as in other, um, you know, we, we've probably all seen this anecdotal, <laughs> anecdotally as well, where we're not all doing these things that we know help as it is at a baseline. So I imagine that does, that may be a factor here. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very hesitant to change my practice at the moment. Um, if, if they need steroids, I'm obviously giving them steroids because they need steroids for whatever reason. And another thing that worries me then, like, let's say they get, they, they get into refractory shock that we want to give them um, stress those steroids for shock, then then do we keep the dexamethasone? Do we switch because of the mineral acorticoid? Like, again, I need to see the, I need to see the whole, the whole paper. I think that's fair. And I, I do want to point out a few things. One, I think that when we discussed this and Dr. Kibirman mentioned this, the baseline 30% sort of, you know, num- mortality numbers, they're very different from numbers a lot of ICUs experience. And I think that is put in perspective by one of the physicians who's actually uh, commenting on the Q&A chat box. He's a fantastic collaborator and uh, I respect him very, very much out of the UK. Tomas is... Uh, clinical lead uh, for research at his institution, and he's one of the investigators for recovery. So, so happy he's joining us. Uh, and he's saying that he'd argue that you have to put the results in the context of very, very different uh, systems in the United Kingdom and uh, United States, because the critical care admission practices and the realities of how we function are very different, which is, I think, also what all of you know, you guys have mentioned. So, and he's saying the same thing. So I think he has the heterogeneity, how we function in critical care, who hits the ICU, who gets out of the ICU, what do we offer in the ICU, and what are goals of treatment and philosophy of care, it, it really does impact it. So I think more to be learned on this topic coming up. Um, I will quickly move on to the next question, which has been asked by so many people. I feel like uh, Vikram's going to have a fun time dealing with this. So Vikram, a really quick for you. Strategies for one, maximizing success uh, of extubation in these patients. So one, a lot of them are on sedation for a long time. A lot of them are mechanical ventilation for a long time. One of my previous uh, ER um, residents, uh, Sean's uh, asking, you know, with so much sort of sedations and paralytics on board, does that increase your difficulty in intubation, sedation, and then of course on extubations? So thoughts on that. Thanks, Virin. And that's... uh... Uh, loaded question because it wasn't easy to extubate a significant number of our patients. Um, yes, you're right. So all the factors for that require long periods of intubation, you know, severity of illness for sure, bad ARDS, which off and on in the ICU survivors progress to fibrotic lung disease, deep uh, requirement for deep le- levels of sedation down to RAS minus four, huge uses of neuromuscular blockade to keep them synchronous with the vent. All those issues made extubation quite difficult. And you know, usually a good ICU uh, would like to have spontaneous awakening trials where every morning sedation is held and applicable candidates are put up for a spontaneous breathing trial. In the middle of a pandemic, especially when most of the nurses are outside the room and uh, SAT gets complicated if the patient self-extubates himself or herself, I believe that uh, carrying out a, a good SAT can be difficult when you're dealing with a novel pathogen like this. Uh, but that said, um, 
so all of those consequences consequentially makes extubation difficult. And we had a 25% tracheostomy rate in our survivors. But there were some things that we were keeping an active eye out for. So we are trying to implement SATs as much as we can. SBTs, a close eye on how fluid uh, overloaded the patient was, you know, dry lung, happy lung kind of a physiology. Um, and we were trying to get our extubations done in negative pressure rooms because just like intubations, extubations are aerosol generating procedures. When we were taking out the ET tubes, we were finding that a lot of these ET tubes were crusted with thick secretions. So there is a role for mucolytics chest physical therapy and maybe a role for uh, downgrading to high flow nasal cannula to improve the mucociliary clearance. Um, but overall, extubation was difficult, not entirely impossible, but uh, needed very close monitoring and supervision. Um, and do you use your typical, usual extubation protocols, or did you create new protocols, uh, Dr. Kadir, Dr. Gallo? In terms of um, protocols, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say we created new protocols. I do agree that spontaneous awakening trials were, you know, probably are probably one of the biggest challenge here. And I think early on, for, for, for me, I found them to be a huge challenge. But once some of that fear went away, um, I think people got better about it. Um, for me, another issue that's been extraordinarily difficult to manage has been delirium. Um, and so we've, you know, we've made a, quite a bit of effort to minimize sedation when we can reorient, do all of those simple, boring things at the bedside. Um, which have been a lot easier to do as, as people have gotten more comfortable with these patients. Um, uh, it was a uh, high flow nasal cannula after extubation was also mentioned. And I do that, I would say almost routinely because I think it's a relatively low risk uh, intervention that can prevent at least some reintubations. Fair enough. So, um... We've talked about how it can be difficult to extubate after prolonged periods in the ICU and uh, COVID-19. So just like with early intubations, there was a lot of concern about doing tracheostomy uh, procedures for patients with COVID-19, right? But with time, you've learned to, you know, you've figured out some sort of a middle ground. So one, um, are you, Dr. Uh, Gallo, are you doing tracheostomies at your institutions? And if you are, what are the guardrails within which you're doing tracheostomy for these patients? So um, at the beginning, um, our institution kind of like complied with that idea that we had to wait for 21 days um, from the first guidelines that came up, like I want to say early March or late March, 21 days. And that was it. No, like, no, no, we could not even talk about it before. But now again, we, we have appropriate PPE. This patient's now, we, we are approaching them as we would approach anyone prolonged mechanical ventilation. From again, years of knowledge that if you keep an ET tube for 14 days or more, the chances of long-term stenosis, long-term problems with recovering speech, um, even even um, we, as a winning tool, tracheostomies, sometimes we forget that tracheostomies are fabulous winning tools. For delirious patients, if you take that tube out of their mouth, put it in the, their throat that they can at least talk to you and interact with you in a more meaningful way, it's a beautiful winning tool. And we, can, we should not forget about that. Uh, so now what we're doing, we, we are starting the conversation as we used before, like 10 to 14 days we start the conversation. Um, unfortunately, we are seeing that these patients with COVID are staying on the vent a little bit longer than our um, ARDS previously. And I would loop into what Dr. Vikram said before, what Dr. Uh, Mukherjee said before, that um, we are requiring a lot of sedation to keep these patients um, um, in lung protective ventilation and, and with their driving, respiratory drive um, suppressed. Um, so our approach now, we start talking about it 10, 14 days. Uh, we are being asked uh, by our ENT colleagues to get a PCR just so they have it, but they have not been declining, at least here in our institution, they have not been declining positive patients for tracheostomies. 
in talking about supportive therapies, but this was this usually comes in when patients are sort of starting to make progress. What about patients who don't make progress, become refractory, you've tried everything, you've done the basics of critical care, the high-level management for ARDS, and now you're considering ECMO. So for our next question that I have for Dr. Kadir, and after this, we're going to go into a rapid fire because I have about a list of 35 questions for you guys here is, uh, so should we be using ECMO if needed and how do you select the right patient? So this is an important question. Um, ECMO is a specialized therapy that is, um, you know, very resource intensive. Um, so, you know, what is, in, in whom do we use ECMO um, prior to COVID? So in terms of ARDS, many of you are probably familiar with EOLIA, um, in which uh, 249 patients were randomized to ECMO or conventional therapy. They could cross over into the ECMO arm if needed. Mortality in the ECMO group was 35%, and the not ECMO group was 46%, but the signific this significance was not statistically significant. Um, and I could spend a long time talking about the nuances of that study, um, and uh, most of my fellows know that I've been known to do so, but that will probably derail this discussion. So I'll refrain from going there. In terms of patient selection in general, the RESP score um, is a really nice tool that one can use. It's actually the RESPscore.com. It puts in, um, this score was derived from variables in the ELSO database that were associated with survival. Um, in terms of COVID specifically, obviously this is unknown territory. Um, also, the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization has put forward some guidance um, on ECMO um, in COVID. Um, so this guidance keeps in mind that we're in the middle of a pandemic in which hospital systems are getting overwhelmed or have the potential to get overwhelmed. Um, so some of the key takeaways that um, they have in their guidance which I very much agree with, is that um, ECMO should not be started before maximizing traditional therapies. So what does that mean? Optimize the vent, uh, use neuromuscular blockade for the most part, prone the patient. As, as I keep saying, we've underutilized proning prior to this, although it seems like we're using it a lot more. Um, and if after max therapy, these patients still have refractory hypoxia or hypercapnia, then proceed to ECMO. Um, so, and all of this can be accomplished quickly. Like you can do all of these things in 24 hours, 48 hours. Um, and these patients, if you're going to put them on ECMO, they, they do better if you put them on early. Um, the other things to keep in mind are that these patients should be very carefully selected from a comorbidity standpoint. Um, you know, more comorbidities, higher likelihood for mortality. Um, advanced age is also associated with increased risk for mortality, as is mechanical ventilation for longer than a week. So putting these people on early is very important. Um, I think the other um, you know, big thing here is that ECMO is indeed resource intensive and system capacity will you know, unfortunately have to play a role in your patient selection. And um, they do mention that criteria should probably be more restrictive as hospital capacity decreases with an aim to triage um, in order to maximize risk-benefit ratio. Um, and actually, they do mention um, perhaps focusing on younger patients with single organ failure as they're likely to do better. Um, and then if a system is truly at crisis capacity, it may even be appropriate to cease ECMO in general and allocate these resources elsewhere. Um, so in terms of how these patients are doing, I think a lot remains to be seen. Um, there is this very nice um, registry, the ELSO registry is updating their dashboard um, quite regularly. And as of last night, they had um, a little over 1,800 patients um, with COVID. Um, and hospital outcomes were known for about 1,200 of them. Um, and about 55% of them were DC'd alive. Many are still on ECMO, many are still in the hospital. So we don't know what the ultimate mortality is going to be. Um, some other you know, notable things is the median age here was 48 and the median hours from intubation to ECMO was 90 hours. So just under four days. So people are putting them on relatively early, although I would argue that we can do even better. Um, another important thing to keep in mind is the median hospital length of stay was 27 days. 
Um, so that is going to potentially strain a hospital system. So, you know, to summarize, yes, ECMO can be used as a rescue therapy, um, but one should be very selective um, and maximize less invasive therapies first and also be very mindful of resource allocation at your center. So a little bit of more or less and then when we consider more to make sure we're doing the less. Is, is that a fair summary? I'm sorry, can you so, repeat that? So less is more, and then if you're going to do more, then make sure you're doing enough of the less. Exactly, yes. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Well, before we move on, I just want to say I think the slideshow is uh, stuck, but we are done with the official last question. Uh, and now I have a rapid fire of questions for you guys. I'm trying to get through as many of them. So whoever wants to jump in, I will. Uh, I would encourage a minute response. So this is going to be a lot of thinking on your feet. You ready, guys? So, what is the role of Entitle for managing uh, management of progressively hypoxemic patients with COVID nineteen? Entitle CO two. Entitle CO two monitoring or or removal. Monitoring was the when would you would you use Entitle CO two monitoring for safety concerns? on non-invasive or high flow. I'm assuming that means, do you use that as a marker for when they're tiring out or to measure their dead space? That sounds like a great idea, but I usually do zero ABGs. That's great. So that's less than one minute. And also, uh, I, think, I think, Vikram, I have two questions for you. Do you do serial ABGs? Because somebody asked about that. They said, what's the point of doing serial ABGs? Because you know, you're not really worried about hypercapnia you're worried about oxygenation. So just look at the sets and ABGs are painful. And it sounds like you wanted to say something about the entitled CO2, so go for both. Uh, thanks, Virin. So entitled CO2 on a BiPAP or high flow would be a pretty unreliable marker of your hypocapnia. You wouldn't get an accurate signal. So yes, maybe in a patient who is intubated and you're playing with the tidal volumes with a fixed dead space, but in a non-intubated patient on high flow or BiPAP, I think it would be dangerous even to use it. Fair enough. I know you guys made me promise not to ask you this question and clearly I'm not a good friend. So I'm going to go right ahead and do it anyway, because people want to know, what do you think about the silent hypoxemia? I will preface it with saying that I truly believe it's not new. I think we're in the situation where we are saying so much of severe respiratory illness, uh, but it's a free open forum. How do you tell us your feelings? Do you think it's real? Uh, is this a de novo entity? Uh, if you want to comment on the cause, all are fair questions and fair game. Is it real? Yes, it's happening. We see it. Is it new? I don't think so. I've definitely seen it before. Um, I think most experienced intensivists have seen it before. I think it's it's more in your face now because we're seeing many more of these cases, and many of our patients are younger than our usual um, than our usual ICU population, and they have more reserve. Fair enough. Um, I'm going to move on and let uh, whoever wants to take this is next. Role of physical therapy, right? So this has been a challenge. We know these patients decondition, just like any other critically ill patients with mechanical ventilation. So are you seeing difficulty starting therapy? Are you, and if you are, how are you encouraging it? Are you having to clear them off precautions? Are you using any cutoffs? What's your experience? I would love to take this question. This is such a great question because physical therapy is so, so important. So when COVID first started, there was a lot of hesitancy to go in the room unless you're absolutely necessary. I think that physical therapists are absolutely necessary in the ICU. Um, once we had, we had one brave physical therapist start seeing the COVID patients and took excellent care of them and then more followed suit. And um, we've had a relatively low rate of VTE in our, um, in our center. And I think that that's a big reason why. I think like, the, the importance of physical therapy and occupational therapy as well cannot be overstated in this patient population. I completely agree with you. We have had a very low risk of very low um, VTE and um, despite the D-dimer levels that people keep talking about. And agree, Varen, we are seeing so much neuromuscular weakness from the steroids, from the paralytics, from the deep sedation. I think PTOT is their best shot of having a functional recovery from a horrible ICU stay. Again, full PPE. Just make sure that make sure that your staff has full PPE. 
So far, we, again, I can only speak from our experience. We have been check, tracking. Everybody who has been wearing PP appropriately has not gotten infected, at least where I work. I love that you guys are actually... Um, yes, PT. What you're saying, yes, and, and protect and serve. I, I agree. I think that's the way to go about it. Um, this sounds like a question for somebody who would be the head of the special pathogens program. So what is the use of steroids in co-infections with influenza and... Uh, SARS-CoV-2, and I would even throw in that we now know that co-infections are not at 2%. They're much, much more common. So what do you do in those situations? Uh, it goes back to, thanks, Vidyan. It goes back to Nida's excellent description of the recovery trial that we should use steroids with a lot of caution in these patients. We know from SARS-CoV-1, if you may, and from the MERS literature that using steroids in the early viremic phase of the disease can worsen outcomes, increase the time to viral clearance, increase hospitalization. So it's great when you use steroids in the second phase of the disease when the host immune response is going all right. But again, using steroids early on when the viremic phase is profuse uh, should be done with a lot of caution in my mind. All right. Very loaded question. I almost want to give it the question tonight because I think this is so seeped in physiology that I'm, I'm having second thoughts about how to answer this. But what about Regina Hurley asked, what about low PCO2, should that be a factor in deciding to intubate? I've had some time to think about this question, so if you want to take a second, this is a very loaded question. Can you repeat the question? Yes. Because I don't, I, don't I, I don't think I got it. Yes. So suppose a patient has super low PCO2, partial pressure of carbon dioxide, so let's say it's 20, uh -huh. right? And I assume this is spontaneously breathing patient. Would this be a patient, you know, would this be a factor in deciding to intubate? Tell me about their pH. Can they, are they compensating? <laughs> if they're compensating, they're talking to me, like Dr. Kadir said, can they talk to me? They're compensating. It's the whole thing. Like, it's the whole thing. We, unfortunately, in critical care, we can't, we can't just choose one little piece of data and decide an important intervention such as intubation and go from there. Like it's the trend was, was the PCO2 like 40 an hour ago and now it's 20 and the pH is, is appropriately compensated. They're probably doing well. Now is the PCO2 20 and their pH is not with it. Well, they're probably getting tired. I would, I would go with the trend. I would talk to the patient, make sure that they can still speak in full sentences. Um, go from there. Spoken like a true critical care physician. I let, let me let me guess this. And Alice and I are twins, but I will ask you this, right? Are you also the person who looks at CBT waveforms instead of just the numbers? Of when course. You, yes. Of course. Fair enough. Waveforms. Uh, <laughs> waveforms fix everything. All right, guys. Well, I'm going to take the last two seconds to try and summarize the fantastic information that you all shared uh, and sort of just remind everybody about a few things. So we've shared a lot of evidence pieces that all three of our panelists use in the chat box. So I, I'm trying to get them into a same document and share it with the webinar when it goes up. So just keep an eye out for that. Um, if you guys have thoughts about what topics we could cover, please write to us uh, on the um, um, COVID-19 resource page for chest. Uh, I do see a lot of questions that I would have loved to ask. And I'm so sorry I didn't ask them, but I promise you there's gonna be more of different kind of webinars coming up. Um, to summarize, uh, if I may, really quickly, and please let me know if you want me to add anything. Uh, using, uh, you know, trajectory as a course of clinical illness is important. Uh, you know, don't wait for somebody to tire out. If you think that they're getting there, prepare early. Uh, you know, we don't need to be on two extremes. Uh, but yes, if patients are able to keep up with breathing, uh, then just ideally we can just support them. High flow being the kind of things like go-to pathway here, but non-invasive having a role. Uh, especially if you know we are not able to eventually go down the line and intubate. Um, consider steroids, especially with other in, uh, indications, uh, taking it a little bit with a pinch of salt, given that uh, the study was especially not based in the UK, US system, so keeping in mind that there could be heterogeneity and with that sort of high baseline mortality that this could be a factor of uh, different care patterns. Uh, to maximize extubation success, making sure we don't sedate heavily, paralyze heavily if we can, choose the right mode of ventilation, try early passive PD, early active PD, encourage family interactions. Remember that 
our patients are, I know we see them in the same unfortunate situation, remembering that, you know, they, they're there and they want to get better and reminding them of that and providing them that stimulus goes a long way. Atricosomies can be considered as we're learning more and more that presence of viral PCR may not mean infectivity. So just check it for safety, but after there is a non-testing based way of progressing and considering tracheostomy, especially because it can help your patients get more mobile, um, more conversant, more sort of active. And then use ECMO, if, uh, especially if your all the high yield interventions are, are not working, but then please select the right patient. Dr. Kadir said that, you know, to make it very short, it's that patient with probably one organ failure and no other significant contraindication. So as I take a big breath, I want to thank all three of you. Um, I've never taken so many notes since I finished med school. Uh, I'm super proud of what we did here today. Clearly 300 people thought so as well. So thank you all three of you for joining us. And uh, I hope we can get together for doing one of these again. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Bye, guys. Thank you. Thanks.